0: Once more, we continue on through Revelation, so I encourage you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, and today we are going to look at, finally, the climactic ending that I have been longing for and that we all actually long for. Revelation 20, I will begin where we read this morning. I am going to begin by reading at verse 1, but I'm going to read all the way down through verse 10 this time. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death hath no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years and when the the thousand years are expired satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth gog and magog to gather them together to battle the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's pray. Again, our Father and our God, it is our joy and our privilege to gather together as saints redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, whom you have called to be faithful, to once again gather together and worship you, and to reflect upon the truths contained in your word, and to find that our souls are nourished by it. I pray that you would, as was prayed earlier, eliminate those distractions which would tug our hearts and our minds away from your word, and instead that we would rejoice and meditate and cling to the truth that we find within it. And may you be honored in everything that we do and say in this service. For we ask it in the name of our risen King, Jesus. Amen. Some of you have probably read the stories, the Chronicles of Narnia. And those of you who have been paying attention to the things that have been going on in our school, you'll note that that's actually one of the plays that we have done in the past, and we are once again doing this year. We're going to do The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In the Chronicles of Narnia series, there is a book, though, called The Last Battle. And in it, C.S. Lewis essentially records the ending of Narnia, but the beginning of a blissful new uh, country that Aslan had created and prepared for all true Narnians and followers. What he was trying to do, I think, was to convey some of what we see in our text today in Revelation, which is to say that in that story, Aslan has to eradicate the enemies of Narnia. He has to get rid of all of the evil that is there and destroy Narnia and completely make a new one. And I think C.S. Lewis perhaps read the book of Revelation and saw great parallels in his story as he was trying to write it. The text that we have before us today is one that we long for. Anytime you have a story where there is a bad guy in it, you want the story to end well. You want the good guys to win. And honestly, one of the frustrating things about some of the stories and movies today is that they don't end the way you want them to end, which is kind of a creative way of create, uh, telling a story, but it's not satisfying. And I think the reason why it's not satisfying is because that is not the way God has written the story of history. God has written the story of history to have a climactic but victorious ending. And created within our hearts as human beings, He has given us this desire to see that ending in life. I was reading and perusing some articles earlier today and even this week in my news app, and it's just frankly discouraging. To see the things that are happening, to see the evil around us in the world, to see the evil that's happening in our own nation, in our own local government, things like that, it's very discouraging. Something in our hearts yearns for evil to be dominated by the righteous judgment of God, because created within us is the need to worship. And when we see the evil around us, we want to see the good guy win thankfully, the story of, the storyline of the entire Bible and the storyline of human history and the story that God has created and has ordained to happen has a happy ending. And the climax of that ending is in our text today, where we read of a final battle, very much like what C.S. Lewis referred to in his book, The Last Battle. And in this text, I think we see three things that remind us of the future we have, the future hope, where the story ends the way we want it to end, where the story ends with God as the victor and evil finally eradicated. It begins, however, on somewhat of a negative note, for we see, first of all, the final deception, the final deception. In verse 7, after we've looked at this glorious millennial reign, a kingdom in which Jesus Christ himself will be the eternal king, where he will reign and rule with righteousness, at the end of a thousand years, Satan, who has been locked in this prison, as it says in verse 7, will be loosed. And as I mentioned this morning, the angel that locked him up was given a key, and everything in us is screaming, throw it away! Get the key out. Don't ever let Satan, the serpent, devil, don't let him out. But in God's economy and in God's wisdom and matchless providence, he has determined that not only it should happen that Satan be released, but in fact that it must happen. And I think that it must happen because again, it reminds us just how depraved our hearts are. So Satan, once again, is released in verse seven and loosed out of this prison. And Satan has had a thousand years in the bottomless pit or the abyss, to think about the thousands of years of human history in which he has run rampant, in which he has gone about roaring like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. For thousands of years he's been doing that, going before God as the accuser of the brethren. He's had a thousand years to think about all of that. To think about the fact that when God says, your time has come, your time has come. He's had a thousand years to think about that. And most of us in our society today, when we look at prisons, we look at the whole concept of of people who reject the death penalty and things like that because we want to see the dignity of humanity. And so what we do is we... Place them in prison, and if their crime was especially egregious, we place them in prison for a long time. And if their crime wasn't that bad, well, maybe after sitting in prison for a while, maybe they'll finally realize the error of their ways. It won't be, they're not as bad as we think they are. And after a period of time in prison, after they thought about what they've done, about how perhaps it might be better for them and for society if they did the right thing, then when we let them out, they'll change their mind. That's the way we think. We almost would have hoped that that is what Satan does. The one who was once the most beautiful angel, worshiping God, created to worship God. Instead, he's released from his prison after a thousand years where Jesus has reigned supreme and Satan has had literally zero influence. And instead of coming out and saying, I should have submitted to you long ago. I'm sorry about what I've done. I'm sorry about what I did in Eden. I'm sorry about all of this. We would hope that somebody who's been incarcerated for a thousand years would have thought at least twice about what he did. But the very next verse, verse 8, tells us that not only is Satan unremorseful of what he has done, but he's going to go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. His intention after leaving his incarceration by the sovereign king of the universe is not to return to worship him, to recognize his sovereignty, to recognize his power and authority. Once again, his whole goal is to go out and rebel. And his rebellion is described as a deception. After a thousand years, the earth will be populated with people who are not saved. It begins with people who have followed the Lord, who have sought to honor him, and then as they have children, their their children have children, and the, the population continues to grow even under the reign of a sovereign, righteous king like Jesus. There will be people who are not saved who will say, I don't think there's anything wrong with me. I mean, we have a righteous king, sure. Everything's going well in the world right now, as it were, just because we have a righteous king. But they think that they're good. So much so that Satan is going to have an absolute heyday with them when he's released. For he goes out to deceive them. They think their hearts are not deceived In spite of the fact that they have reigned with, they have been under the reign of King Jesus and of His saints, they will be deceived. And the phrase there, "the four corners of the earth," is is essentially describing in a metaphorical way the entirety of the globe. That everybody on the face of the planet who has been under the reign of Jesus Christ will be under now once again the influence of Satan, where he's going to look everywhere. He's going to go to South America. He's going to go up to Canada. He's going to go over to Europe and to Asia. He's going to go over to Australia. If there's anybody in Iceland, he's going to go down to Iceland. He's going to do everything he can to deceive. To do exactly what he did all the way back at the beginning of Genesis. And it just makes me wonder how he's going to do it. He'll have a thousand years to think about it. I can just imagine him going to people and saying, so, Jesus has been reigning for a thousand years. Really? What are some of the things he's been telling you? And they will try to, like Eve, remember the words of Jesus. They'll try to remember the laws that he has said. But if history repeats itself, and if Satan has not figured out a new battle strategy, my guess, my suspicion is he going to say, really? Is that, is that really what he said? Or do you think really that law's a big, a big deal? I mean, people are doing this now, really. People are looking at the Bible and they're saying, well, I mean, I know that the Bible says certain things. Like, for example, the Bible says that marriage is between a man and a woman and that God has designed it to be that way and that society really will collapse if marriage isn't between a man and a woman. But that's so last year. That's antiquated. That is the, the, the teachings of a very ancient culture. But we have now arrived to a new enlightenment. We have reached the point where we know that even though God has said... That marriage is between a man and a woman. We now understand better that that's not what he was really saying. He was saying something else. Satan's strategy hasn't changed, and it won't change. His whole intention is to deceive. And the crazy thing is, is that a lot of times, even though we know that's what he's going to do, we might be tempted to fall for it. It makes sense. And were it not for the protection of God that we read about in First Peter 1 this morning, that he guards our faith, if it were possible, in the words of scripture, Satan might even be able to deceive the very elect. So whoever he's deceiving in verse 8, whoever they are, even though they've been under the righteous reign of the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, they are not his true followers. For when they hear with persuasive words the influence of Satan and the false ideologies he's going to put into their ears, they will follow him. They will listen to him. So much so that it says in verse 8 that he will gather all of these people together and that the number of these people who have been deceived is as the sand of the sea. If you look at the storyline of the Bible, everything that Satan does tries to mirror and counterfeit the things God has done. Go back to the book of Genesis and remember what had God told Abraham. Leave your family and your kindreds, leave them all, and go to a land that I will tell you. And then what does he tell them later in chapter 15? Abraham, go outside your tent. And just look up into the sky. See if you can count any of those stars. I'm going to make of you, Abraham, a great nation. They're going to be as the sands of the sea. There's going to be so many of them. And I'm going to do this for you, for the glory of my name, so that when people curse you, I will curse them. And when people bless you, I will bless them. And through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The four corners of the globe will be blessed through you. That was what God did. What does Satan do? Satan goes to the four corners of the earth and to create his own counterfeit people where he maligns the word of God, he maligns the reign of Christ, he does everything he can to do one final act of defiant rebellion against God and he is so successful that he's able to mirror even the amount of people that God had promised Abraham where God himself says, Satan will gather these people whose number is as the sand of the sea. There'll be so many of them and the question that has got to be burning in your mind like it was in mine is, how? Jesus has reigned for a thousand years. How could these people be so deceived? How can they think that to follow Satan after the perfect reign of the righteous King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that to follow Satan would be anything commendable? And I, again, I believe the whole point of this is to once again show us just how depraved our hearts are we don't realize how evil we are. True believers who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, like we sang about earlier, recognize just how much we have been saved from. Were it not for the protective grace of God, we would be be deceived by every ideology around us now. Every one of them. Were it not for the work of God and His Holy Spirit protecting us, and us as believers taking upon us the armor of God, which includes the shield of faith so that we can quench or withstand the fiery darts of the wicked one, the evil one. Were it not for the protection of God, we would be no different than these people who are gathering at this place that is referred to as Gog and Magog. Our hearts are so wicked and depraved, which is why it startles my mind to think that sometimes we think, or we hear people think, that if I just saw some kind of grand miracle, then I'd believe that there's a God. I've heard people tell, and some people have told me this, that if God were to somehow manifest himself in a miraculous way, if he were, if he were to make a lightning strike from heaven, or if I say, all right, God, show me a sign of heaven, make a cloud or something that would just show me who you are, or do some great miracle, and then I'll believe you. that even that would not change their morally bankrupt and corrupt heart. Jesus, I mentioned this to the teenagers in Sunday school, Jesus gave a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. The rich man goes to Hades and is in torment, and Lazarus goes into the bosom of Abraham, in the arms of Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jewish people. And the rich man says, Lazarus, dip... Dip your finger in water. And Abraham, let him just, just give me a drop, just a drop. Fry him in torment. And Abraham says, he can't do that. You've received your comforts in life, and now you've received your due reward, the judgment of God and eternal torment. Lazarus has experienced his trials in life, but he was a follower of the one true God, and now he is in eternal felicity and peace. And the rich man says, Okay, well, if he can't give me any relief, then send him over to my brothers. Send him right now. Send him to warn them of this horrible place. I don't want them to experience the exact same thing. And Abraham says, they've got Moses and the prophets. And that that was his way of saying, they've got this book. Let them read it. And the rich man says, no, they won't believe that. But if there was some kind of sign that they could see, if they saw somebody raised from the dead, then they would believe. And Jesus says that Abraham in this parable says this, if they would not believe Moses and the prophets, what makes you think they'll believe somebody who rose from the dead? Over and over again, the Jewish people were demanding of Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a sign of who you are. And Jesus said, what more could I show you? What else could I do to demonstrate to you that I am the son of God? I've made blind people see. I've made lame people walk. I've made dumb people be able to speak. I've even raised people from the dead. I've healed all manner of diseases. I have taught you the very things of the word of God, and you have felt the power and authority of it. What more could I show you? The problem was their hearts. The problem was not the message. The problem was not even the medium of the message. The problem was their hearts. The reason why Satan will be able to deceive people who are numbered as the sand of the sea is not because Jesus was a bad king. The reason why why Satan will be able to deceive people as the number of the sand of the sea is not because we will have done a bad job at being good, persuasive salesmen. The reason why Satan will be able to deceive people so that they're numbered as the sand of the sea is because those people in their hearts do not want Jesus as their king. And at the first opportunity they have to rebel against him, they do. And that is every one of our hearts from the very moment we're born. This was hard for me, frankly, to embrace when I held Benjamin for the first time. I looked at him and I remember thinking that he just looked so innocent, but then I kept thinking about the fact of how much I wanted him to love God, but that I couldn't make him love God. As I I looked at him, I just felt helpless because as much as I want him to love God, I will not be able to persuade him. Nothing I do will persuade him. Of course, bringing him to church and teaching him scripture and things like that is good. That's important. In fact, we're commanded as Christians to do that. But ultimately, I'm not going to save my son. Laura's not going to save my son. You're not going to save my son. The power of God in the gospel as invested in his word will save my son. And these people refused that they didn't want him. So when they find a leader who finally says, hey, let's get an army together, let's go over to Jerusalem, let's overthrow this king, let's overthrow all of his followers, let's get this over with, and we'll establish a new kingdom, and I'll be the king. That they finally go over to this place, and there's a lot of debate as to what Gog and Magog refers to And we don't have time, but if you were to go to Ezekiel 38 and 39, you would read about Gog and Magog, about King Gog and the nation Magog, and you'd read about that. But the idea simply is this, that Gog and Magog represent the people who are against God himself, that they don't want, they represent the group of people who refuse the righteous reign of Jesus, and they gather themselves together as a nation. It's almost like Psalm 2 when it says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? They set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. That's exactly what these people are doing. They're raging against the king. So in verse 8, they go, he goes to deceive them. They gather together. In verse 9, they went up. On the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. The camp of the saints, the beloved city, what is that a reference to? In short, I believe that is a reference to the city of Jerusalem. I believe this is the holy city, Zion, the city that God had promised to David to be his throne forever from generation to generation and that there would be a seed of his who would always reign on the throne, and that he would reign on the throne forever. Satan knows exactly where Jesus is. Satan knows where the camp of the saints is. Satan knows where God's love is set upon. This city is described as the beloved city. God has set his love upon it, and he has set his son on the throne. And Satan says, let's go around it. So they literally surround the entire city with this massive army hoping to overthrow the king who has reigned for the last thousand years. And look, the only thing we can compare to of kings who have reigned for thousands of years is maybe the Roman Empire. But even after that, it's not one king. It's lots of kings. And it's a very ugly history. This is one king who has lived and reigned for a thousand years. And they finally want to uproot him. And so they surround the city. And you can only imagine what might be going through the saints' minds. Because they know if they love the king and if they love the king's word, they know what's going to happen next. They know that Satan will not prevail. There will be no fear in their hearts. I'm, I'm convinced of that. They will see this massive army of people who have been deceived and who want to rebel against the righteous reign of Jesus But not a soul of those who are counted among the saints will fear. I think they're going to look at their king, Jesus. We will look at our king, Jesus. And we're going to say, watch him work. And in verse 9, it's almost as if you expect this grandiose battle to happen. But it doesn't. Verse verse 9, fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. In some ways, it, it almost seems anticlimactic. You have this great, grandiose battle, and you're expecting this great battle, and yes, the good guys are probably going to lose some people, and maybe there's points in the battle where you're wondering, are they going to win? But then in the end, the hero always ends up winning against it, right? You expect something like that, but it's, it's very anticlimactic, I mean, it almost is like that Indiana Jones scene where this one guy comes up with the whip and he's going around back and forth. And Indiana Jones is watching him doing that and he finally just takes out a gun and shoots him. Like, that's the end of the fight. There was no fight. There's no fight here. The saints don't even have to lift a finger. The God of heaven, the Father, rains down fire, lightning from heaven, and it immediately devours the entirety of the opposition. There's no battle. None of them stand a chance. The final battle is, frankly, very, very short. And we move from the final deception to the final battle to, verse 10, the final judgment. The final judgment. The devil that deceived them. The one who was bound for a thousand years only to be released at the permission of God who leads a rebellion against the king of kings and lord of lords. He is finally and eternally cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the ending we've been waiting for the one who is the serpent at the beginning of Scripture, deceiving and plunging humanity into sin, is finally experiencing the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15, where there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And yes, he did crush the serpent's head at the cross for sure, but Satan still has influence right now. But it won't be for long. One day, he will officially and swiftly and finally crush the serpent's head. And that'll be the end. Satan will not, will not be permitted to be released anymore. There's no key to open him up and, and let him back out. It's the end. It's done. It's curtains for Satan. Satan. The judgment of God has finally fallen upon him, and this final judgment is irrevocable. Nothing that Satan could do to petition the Almighty will change his sentence forever. God will vindicate his righteous law. He will vindicate his righteous nature, and he will judge Satan once and for all. And this is what we get to look forward to as Christians. It hasn't happened yet. Right now, we are afflicted on every side. We are like the saints who are enduring for a little season the trying of our faith, where we see sin either in other people or sin in ourselves, and we see the world and its influence, and we see Satan himself indeed walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour He wants to devour us. Until the day when he's finally cast into the lake of fire, we will be fighting. And it's going to be a fight for us right now, a fight to the death. There won't be one moment in the rest of Rodney King's life where he's not fighting his own sinful nature, where he's not fighting the world and its philosophies and its influence, and where he's not fighting even Satan himself, who wants to sift him like wheat. It's the same for us, all of us in this room. And the question is, how will we respond to it? Will we take heart, like we talked about this morning, that there is coming a day when it will be over? Are we taking courage in the fact that we're on the winning side? We're on the winning side. We don't have to fear Satan. We don't have to fear the battle that we face each day when I get up and I look in the mirror and I see Rodney King who has an inclination still, even though God's spirit rests within him, has an inclination still to sin. I don't have to fear. I have Christ within me. I have the Holy Spirit to help me battle that sin. I don't have to look at the world around me and look at the political atmosphere and fear and wonder what's going to happen. I don't have to fear. Jesus wins. The end is sure, and God's perfect timeline is without—we can't understand it. It's outside our knowledge. Our responsibility as the saints of God is to persevere, press on, continue on, and it's going to be a hard battle, and it's not going to be easy, and we're not going to be perfect— each one of us in this room has failed and will fail again. But one day, the battle will be over. And we can look forward to that day when our king will rule and reign forever. Lord, I just praise you that though at times we are weary and though at times we struggle, nevertheless, in your word, there is great solace. For we know That Satan's doom is sure, as Martin Luther said in his great hymn. And that we must rage against the captor to wage war against the one who is seeking to deceive the hearts of humanity. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who has not trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is currently under the captive spell and deception of Satan, that your spirit would overrule and that you would open their blind eyes to see their need for Christ. For those of us who are pilgrims on this weary road, Lord, I pray for each person in this room, including myself, that you would strengthen our hearts to know you have not left us alone. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not fear because you are with us. And as we wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil, give us the strength to obey. For we ask all of this again in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.